Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Shop JCPenney for thousands of deals so low, no coupons needed. This weekend, save up to 50% on kitchen electrics from brands like Keurig and Cuisinart. Say yes, please, to diamonds and gemstones, now $19.99 each. And bundle up the fam in coats, starting at $14.99. We got your holiday. Black Friday deals. Shop, shop, JCPenney. Offers valid on select items 1118 through 1120. Excluded from coupons. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. Welcome to another episode of Hawkett Podcast. Today I have musician, political blogger, podcaster, odd man, host of the Oddcast, Futuring the Odd Man Out. How's it going? It's going great, man. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Absolutely. So what is the what's the your podcast, Oddcast, Futuring the Odd Man Out about? Well, it's just kind of um it's about I like to talk about secret societies. Uh, the new world order, if you will, a globalism, different things like that. Uh, really what it's turned into is I like to go through kind of some of the classic conspiracies, whether it be the Freemasons or skull and bones or something like that. And I like to see what I can find, what's provable, because a lot of the things when I got into conspiracies many moons ago, I've kind of learned more over time by reading books. And so, so I don't want to you know, repeat things that are not true because I think that happens on the internet all the time. And a lot of people mean well, especially when you first kind of quote unquote, start waking up, you kind of grasp at straws, every pyramid you see, you're like, oh, the Illuminati, you know, those kinds of things. Uh, symbolism is big, you know, and it really uh, can kind of pull people in. And I think that it'll make them believe things that are not always true. So I like to go through these classic conspiracies, the Rosicrucians, the Bavarian Illuminati, and I like to see what we can prove with historical facts and what we can't. And so that's kind of my specialty, but I do get into uh, foreign policy sometimes, geopolitics and stuff like that as well. So how did you come up with your name, the Odd Man Out podcast or Oddcast featuring Odd Man Out? Well, I felt like I was kind of like an odd man out as far as politics goes, because I just personally, from everything that I've learned over the years, I believe both parties are corrupt to the core. And, and, you know, if you read um, even old philosophers, they knew back then that politicians were crooks, you know? And so, you know, after an honest search for years and years, I just, felt like the odd man out. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to, first I was going to call it the odd cast and I was going to mix my love of music with politics, but it's, it's kind of hard to do that. So I ended up calling it the odd cast featuring the odd man out because there were a lot of podcasts that are called the odd cast. Unfortunately, there's probably 10 of them. So what's been your favorite episode to record so far or topic? You know, that's a good question. I've recently done two episodes on the Bavarian Illuminati, and I found that to be more interesting than 
I at first thought it would be because that's one of the first conspiracies I kind of heard about. And I wanted to go in and, and find out more details. And it turns out there's a lot of details and factual information that most of the classic uh, conspiracy writers and podcasters and hosts really didn't talk about. They, you know, they kind of, I've noticed this, a lot of things that I come across, a lot of subjects I try to research, it's, it's like a lot of these hosts, and I'm not cracking on anyone, I'm not a great researcher, but it's almost like they just read the Wikipedia page, you know, they don't really go beyond a couple of layers, and I try to peel back, you know, four, five, six layers of the onion and try to find out more. Yeah, I when I first started out my podcast, I used to do like topic-based episodes, and let me tell you frankly, it was very hard to find accurate information on a topic I want to discuss. To the point, I was like, I need to give up that like route and focus on do doing interviews because I don't trust any information I read on the web anymore. Yeah, it's very hard to. And one of the things people ask me, well, how do you get news? How do you decide what's what's right and what's wrong? And and people will ask, hey, what news sites do you look at? And it's like, well, I don't really have any particular ones, unfortunately. What I try to do is get a handful of. If I'm really looking into something, I'll get a liberal point of view, a conservative point of view, a libertarian point of view. Then I'll try to find somebody who is just out there that doesn't want to have anything to do with, you know, po political parties. And I'll look also at the like the cookie cutter mainstream historians. And then I'll look at the more uh, like historians like Michael Hoffman or someone like that who's trying to do something different. They're pulling out information that's can be backed up, but it's just not talked about in the mainstream. And I try to put it all together because that helps me to kind of form my own opinion. Cause I think a lot of people are just taking someone else's opinion and, and kind of making a podcast out of it. And I'm trying to do something a little bit different. Well, not even that they're also agreeing with them without doing their own research research to see if it's true of what they're saying. I've noticed that a lot of my, myself. I do the same thing and I've slowly backed away and made my own conclusion to see if the facts they're saying are true or not. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the only honest way to do it. And, you know, there's been times where I'll do a show and then maybe the next week or two, I'll find out more information and I'll be like, wow, I wish I could have included that in my show. Cause I try to do like not every show. I don't claim to be, uh, you know, 50, 50 on anything, but I try to give both sides of a point of view you know, pro and con on, on my shows, because I feel like a lot of people will just pick out, say one fact, one event or one quote, and then just use that to make their whole uh, kind of point of view. And I try to do something a little bit different, try to give a little more information. So I read on your Patreon page that you're, you are, or were a political blogger. What exactly is a political blogger? Well, I, since the days of MySpace, I've been blocking <laughs> on that's how old i am uh on uh you know online about politics and, and to anyone who would listen and um you know unfortunately not many people have listened over the years but um you know I, i've just always had an interest in that so i would talk about you know current events a lot of times and then as time went on i got more into his his history and hidden history if you will and so uh, you know i would just talk about it i would just uh, kind of uh, try to write about it and get people interested in it. Cause I think that, you know, everything is so shallow now with the news and even mainstream history that I think it's important to kind of get people 
interested in the truth and in history and where they come from and and why things happen you know the way they did and why things are the way they are now and those kinds of things so speaking of politics and the government what government event woke you up to make you see that they're not really on our sides anymore well you know as bad as i hate to say it because it's become cliche now uh, it was 9-11 you know it was <laughs> because i had just started to take a little bit of an interest in politics i had ran across uh, michael savage the conservative talk show host and i was just in my car i have never been interested in politics before in my car one night i was going through the radio and and i, I heard him on there for some reason i stopped and, and listened and whatever he was talking about talking about at the time i thought you know what that makes sense i i, I agree with that I don't even know if it was overtly political because he kind of goes out of, you know, he used to go kind of off the wall sometimes and talk about food and wine and different things like that. But uh, I'd started to listen to him a little bit and then just started to listen to Rush Limbaugh every now and then. And uh, 9-11 happened. And I still really didn't know the difference between liberal or conservative. I could just tell that there was a big difference in the way CNN and Fox were reporting it. And I stayed glued to the TV for weeks and weeks on end. Just, I couldn't get enough. It was, my mind was blown. What, what's going on here? This shook my world, you know? So where are you from and what are some famous things about your state and why? Well, I am from Tennessee and we're famous for being the country music capital. <laughs> the blue, you know, the bluegrass and country music and that kind of thing and blues in Memphis so we're kind of known for our music and um i think we had one president from here or actually i don't know if he was from here i think andrew jackson lived here but he wasn't originally from here so uh those are a couple of things um and what was the other question i'm sorry uh what are some famous things that was the oh that's you already answered that one and okay. so so what are your what are some famous dishes from tennessee food wise oh, mm, you know that's a good question I don't know. I mean, one of the things that I used to hear when I was a kid was beans and cornbread, which is something I really love, especially now that I've gotten older and uh, I don't get those those country kind of southern dishes like I used to from my mom and my grandmother. I, I really miss that food. But uh, chicken and dumplings, that's another one. Um, gosh, there's so many. Uh, but those are those are two of my favorites for sure. And uh, this sounds gross. It'll probably gross out a lot of people. but um, I like uh, deep fried chicken livers if they're breaded. <laughs> really good stuff. So does your state have any exciting history behind it? You know, unfortunately, I probably should know more history uh, <laughs> about my state. I've spent most of my life kind of uh, looking into national politics and different things like that and even uh, foreign politics. So I I'm sure that there's a ton of stuff, but uh I can't recall off offhand. So what did you want to be when you were growing up besides what you're like doing now? Um, honestly, I wanted to be a pastor because my grandfather was a pastor and uh, I thought that uh, that's what I was going to do, you know, when I was little. So that's the only thing I can really think of in particular. You know, there were things I, I kind of thought were cool, but maybe a soldier because I got into GI Joe very young. That was the big thing. So probably that would be the other one. So, so what are, if you could choose three favorite movies in any genre, what would they be and why? Hmm. 
Good question. Um, well, because I'm a musician and I really like The Doors and Jim Morrison, I've loved his voice for a long time. I love that movie, The Doors. Now, I might watch it today and not like it very much, but when I was a teenager, I loved The Doors. So that's one. Um, you know, it's, it's odd. I'm not a big movie person, never have been. Uh, my family and friends always used to tease me. You haven't seen this movie. You haven't seen that movie. Um, I really got into B horror films about 20 years ago because I worked at a haunted house. It was a all year round haunted house. And I got into B horror films a lot. Um, you know, stuff like night of the living dead and last man on earth and those kinds of things. Um, and other than that, I, you know, I love a good comedy. Um, I'd have to say uh, Airplane's great. Uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights is one of my all-time favorite comedy movies. So if you could choose three favorite shows in any genre, what would they be and why? Um, you know, and probably it's because of my age, but I loved the reruns of Three's Company. So that would be the comedy. Um, I really liked uh, ER. It was a serious kind of dramedy, I guess. And something else. Um, I liked this show called Simon and Simon. It was about these two brothers who were private detectives when I was a kid. So if you could choose, so what is your type of genre, music genre you listen to and why? I, you know, I like a ton of music. Um, I started when I first got into music as a teenager, I got into rock. It was kind of, the, I was, it's at, it was at the very end of the hair metal phase. So I got into like Motley Crue and Rat and uh, bands like that. And then as I progressed, I got into a little bit more extreme rock, like of course, Metallica, Megadeth, uh, Motorhead, Danzig, uh, stuff like that. But over the years, man, I, I've gotten into blues a lot, uh, really old blues. And, and I like newer blues too sometimes. Um, very old country and Western swing. Uh, I like some of that stuff as well. So what, what was your first ever concert you ever gone to? Um, it was, this is going to sound funny, White Snake. This uh, rock band called White Snake, and I think the band that opened up were they were called Kicks K I X, and they had kind of an ACDC vibe. So that was probably the first real concert that I ever went to. So I know you're like reading; you like to read books. So what's your favorite genre of books to read, or what author do you read books from that you enjoy? Well, I only read I only read nonfiction. Um, now, unless something pops out at me every now and then, but since I do this show, I'm constantly reading books, you know, to help me to uh, have material for the show. Um, there's so many good ones. Uh, Anthony C. Sutton's probably one of my favorites. He kind of broke the story on the Skull and Bones as well as the Trilateral Commission. Uh, he also wrote a series of books on Wall Street's role in the Bolshevik Revolution and the rise of Hitler and uh, their relationship with FDR. Uh, there's another guy, Dennis L. Cuddy, who's along the same lines, uh, written about a lot of those issues as well. And he really, he likes to cite these, these obscure uh, 
quotes from books in, in newspapers that most people would never even find. I don't know how he finds them, but it really helps when you're doing uh, podcasting. So who would it be if you could have dinner with any three people dead or alive? Wow. Um, hmm. I've never really thought about that, to be honest. Um, gosh, that's a tough one. You know, uh, probably I'd like to have dinner with Francis Bacon because a lot of people say he was the real Shakespeare. And I think that would be a very interesting conversation to have. So there's one. Uh, did you say three? Yeah, three. Um, in the modern day, I suppose, uh, it sounds kind of simple, but probably I'd like to know who George Washington really was because, you know, there's so much that's been said about him. It would be interesting to know how he really was, who he really was. Um, and maybe more in the modern, modern day era. Um, you know, it's bizarre, but I probably... Charles Manson, it would be very interesting to have a conversation with him. I mean, he's dead now, of course, but. Now, tell me about the three most influential people in your life and how they affected you positively or negatively. Oh, gosh. Well, that would have to be my belated grandmother who passed away last year. Um, she lived next door to me most of my life, and I was the oldest of three children. And so. I was five years older than my uh, next sibling. And so I would go over and hang out with her all the time because my mom was busy. Uh, my sister was seven years younger than me. So she had two small kids. So she had her hands full and I would go to my grandmother's and she would cook for me and she would give me these life lessons and, and read, uh, you know, verses out of the Bible and just give me this. She would tell me things like, you know, this old sage advice, don't hang out with bad crowds because you'll end up getting in trouble, you know, all these different things. And a lot of stuff that she told me stuck with me. Uh, and of course, my mother, too. Um, my mother and father split when I was well, before I was born. And so uh, my mom was like there for me all the time and gave me my sense of humor. And uh, she always told me the truth about my father, too, because he was like um this Vietnam vet who was like an alcoholic. I mean, you name it. He's, he's kind of a cliche, but he was a, he wanted to be a country music singer. He actually went to Texas for a while and tried to tried to make it, but he had such a temper. He would get into fights and whatnot. And she always told me the truth about him, the good and the bad. So I really appreciate my mom always being honest with me. Uh, other than that, I'd probably have to say my best friend, John, we've been friends since we were five and he's always been there for me. And, been a, a, a good role model for me for the most part. So uh, those three people. What is the biggest lesson you ever learned in your life? Oh my gosh. Um, well, probably, and I'm still learning it, not to wear my heart on my sleeve because, uh, you know, I used to be such a soft-hearted person and I got walked all over many times. And uh, so I've had to learn that uh, tough lesson because you want to be good. You want to be a good person. You want to be fair. But, you you know, it's a it's a fine line for people like that uh, to, you know, to try and stand up for themselves and not feel like they're being ugly to other people. Uh, what is the best moment of your life? Um, 
don't tell my daughters, but probably the day my son was born. <laughs> Why is that? Well, I, um, he's 10 years older than, I mean, excuse me, 10 years younger than, um, my youngest daughter. I have two, two daughters and a son and I didn't, we didn't expect to have him and he was a surprise and I never really thought I'd have a son. And it, it's just so different with him because like my daughters were great and they were well behaved and I never really had to worry about them getting into trouble or doing things. He's been a handful from the get go, but he's just been so much fun and, and it's a really funny kid. So he's, uh, he's brought a lot of, uh, um, good things into my life. A lot of laughter, a lot of joy. frustration as a well. Lot of joy. A lot of joy. Yes, absolutely. So what is the worst moment of your life and how did you handle it? Oh gosh. Well, when my grandfather, my grandfather passed when I was about 10 and I was very close to him. So that was probably the first really tough thing to happen. Uh, other than that, probably going on a few years later when I fell in love for the first time and um, I dated this girl for two years, maybe a little bit longer. And then when that fell apart, I was just uh, devastated. So that, and then um, I actually was married when I was very young, uh, I was 22, I guess. And so that fell apart as well. So that was really tough, a uh, good lesson for me, but it was, uh, it was really tough to go through. Uh, what, what do people, well, let me rephrase that. What do you, what is something people seem to misunderstand, uh, misunderstand about you? Um, I think with politics, you know, I'm a really, like most people are so emotional and uh, tribal when it comes to politics and they can't really talk about it without getting mad. And so if I make a post, like say on Facebook, where there's a lot of what I would call normies or something like that, people I know personally, I think people are really intimidated by it and it probably makes them angry. And I think they think that I'm trying to be the smart aleck. And a lot of times I'm just trying to get a conversation started and I don't take the political parties so serious like other people. So I don't take it personal if somebody says something about a politician and other people, you know, they, they get they really it's almost like you're saying something about them or one of their family members when you you critique a poli politician that they like oh yeah i've seen a lot of that on social media especially twitter those people <laughs> on the right and left they're like very into their like parties and all that stuff i'm not into that i've kind of backed down and i could really give two shits for the government now uh, what i've learned the last two years i wouldn't want to support any of these politicians even if they are good-hearted I wouldn't trust them because once they get into office, their whole mindness changes and they follow the policies that these politicians that are already in the system want them to push forward. Yeah, yeah, because the system, unfortunately, is just so corrupt now and I think has been for a long time that there's no way for a good, honest person to make it very long in politics. There's just not. So how did you meet your romantic partner? So... I was in my band and she actually worked with my drummer and he kept telling me, you got to meet this girl. And I kind of was like, no, no, because he had tried to fix me up with some monsters and <laughs> he was kind of a crazy guy. Drummers are all crazy anyway, but he, he was a crazy guy and I kept saying no. And it was my 26th birthday. And 
me and my bandmates and a couple other friends uh, rented a chalet or not a chalet, like um, a condo in um, Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's like this uh, tourist area. And uh, he invited her and her friend and we had some other friends come over. And so she came over and actually, actually, I, I take that back. He had been trying to fix me up with her friend originally. And when they showed up, she and I hit it off instead. And, um, it was about two weeks later, we started dating and we've been together ever since. So that was 20, 20, almost 21 years ago. Oh, well, congratulations on that. Thank you. So what do you, what do you like about her? What do you like about your wife? Well, she's, she is honest. I mean, very honest, like sometimes bindingly honest, but I appreciate that so much because so many people are fake and they hide everything, especially, uh, you know, in my, uh, unfortunately my divorce that I had that, uh, my wife who's, uh, passed away now, but she lied about everything. So I think that trust is so important. And so, uh, I, that's one of my favorite, um, things about her for sure. So what do you think are good qualities of a partner? Let's say, for example, you were not married and you were single and you were starting to date someone now, what kind of qualities would you want in a future wife? I would look for, well, honesty for one. Um, also someone who is somewhat level-headed about, you know, not someone who's overly emotional, you know, someone who uh, can kind of think critically. That would be a, a big time um, turn on. And, um, you know, someone who's fairly open-minded, not to the point where their brain falls out, but <laughs> open-minded enough not to, uh, you know, to, especially politically to stick to one side and, and defend it to the death, you know? So what do you think should be humanity's goal? Well, I think, you know, we should love our neighbors as ourselves, you know, as hard as that is. And I think that's, that's one of the reasons we're told to do that because it is very tough. Um, and I think that, uh, we should try, you know, as, as simple as it sounds, we should try to just lift one another up and, if there was any way that we could stop dividing and come together is I know it's not going to happen, but that's the only way I think that humanity could uh, beat these, these crooked governments and, and their cronies. Could you think of something that everyone could agree on despite the chaotic world we live in now? Well, I think I've noticed this and it may not be true for everyone, but when I've had politi uh, political conversations with people one-on-one, -on -one, they are usually much more open-minded than when they're around a crowd. So I think that when you would bring up things like, you know, I think the government needs to quit wasting so much money on A, B, or C. I think that people are more apt to, to uh, agree on that on either side, unless you bring in the political parties, you know. So definitely that, that's one way, I think. Uh, do you think that these political parties are some form of a cult? Well, I don't think they started out that way, but I certainly think that people develop the cult mentality. Uh, you know, it, it's the, it goes back to our tribalism, I think. And, you know, if you look back at, um, like Edward Bernays, who wrote the famous book Propaganda uh, in the 20s, they already knew how to control the minds of the people through the, the media that they had then, which was radio and uh the newspapers, magazines, those sort of things. So 
uh, definitely, um, that's been, that's been the case for a long, long time. So what ho hobbies do you enjoy doing when you're not podcasting? Well, I enjoy, I enjoy hiking. I, I really enjoy riding my bike, my bicycle. Um, not really mountain biking because I think I'm kind of too old for that now, but I love to ride on greenways and places like that. Uh, what do you think the world will look like in five to 10 years? Oh, man. You know, it's, I think we are, as, as cliche as it sounds, I think we kind of are at a turning point. I think it's either going to be where people because you see a movement where people are starting to try to get back to nature, starting to you know, try to raise their own uh, animals to eat and, and raise their own crops and those type of things. So I think we're either going to go that way or we're going to go towards this transhuman, a uh, transhumanist uh, agenda, unfortunately. And uh, I hope that that's not the case. Speaking of the transhumanist agenda, what's your opinion on that? Well, you know, it's like anything. I think it's a double-edged sword. It could be a great thing as far as curing diseases and ailments and different things like that. But it seems like everything always gets taken too far. And, you know, we've been seeing writings from these transhumanists for so long that uh, I just don't believe that they'll be able to control, uh, you know, not take things too far. I think they'll just do some really... Uh, unhuman things, inhuman. So uh, when we when we first started recording, you mentioned you're a musician. So what kind of musician were you? I played bass and I sang in a band called We Are the Conspiracy. And we still have songs up on Reverb Nation if people want to check it out. But it was kind of a mix between heavy metal and punk. And uh, we really, uh, we, we were together for 10 years and um, my brother played lead guitar. We went through a couple of different drummers and uh, a couple of different uh, guitar players. But uh, my friend David Cooper walked up to me one day. Uh, he was a friend of a friend at the time. And he said, hey, let's start a band. And I was like, I don't play any instruments. And uh, he played guitar. He played guitar for a few years. And he said, well, you know, if you get a bass, I can teach you some notes on the bass. And so it kind of started from there. Um, you know, we we played a lot of shows, a lot of parties, um, you know, played locally. We never really went uh, out of state, but once or twice, but um, we had a ton of fun and it was such a great thing to look back on to just do with it. There's something about creating something with other people. that's very intimate and especially, honestly, my favorite times being in a band was when the three or four of us, depending on how many were in the band at the time, were in one room by ourselves making music or just jamming out. That was the, the funnest part, you know, better than even playing in front of crowds for me. But I'm, I'm kind of a, I'm not a much of a people person anyway. Uh, did you look up to any artists when you were starting out in the music scene? Yeah. So, I liked, uh, as far as, um, I was a big black Sabbath fan. I liked, uh, Danzig and the misfits. Um, I liked, uh, Megadeth, uh, motorhead. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I really got into punk there for a while. Still like it, uh, from time to time. And, um, and I, you know, it's, as I've gotten older, I I've gotten different, uh, musical heroes, but yeah, definitely those when I was coming up. Uh, did you enjoy, what did you, what did you enjoy, uh, what did you, 
What did you enjoy most about being a musician? The creative process, you know, actually getting an idea and kind of, it was almost like watering a garden and, and seeing it finally grow and being able to, to take the fruit or the vegetables. It was such a magical, uh, awesome feeling to see that, you know, to, at first I'd get a kind of a, a melody line in my head and then I would start to write lyrics from that. And then, you know, it would go from there and I would show it to the band or sometimes one of the band members would have a guitar riff or two and, we, and they would be like, check this out. And then we would all collaborate. So the creative process, putting songs together and watching them come, come to life. How did you deal with all the disagreements you might've had with the other bandmates? You know, it was for the most part, we did, we didn't disagree that much. Uh, we like our first drummer was a problem. <laughs> I uh, like the guy still, but he was a problem. He had a problem with drugs and, and he was just kind of a bizarre guy. So he was the the worst part of, of, of dealing with a band. Uh, sometimes you would have to kind of babysit one or two of the guys because they didn't want to show up on time or, uh, you know, they weren't really uh, into the practice that night, those kinds of things. But uh, I'm, you know, I don't see how any bands make it, to be honest with you, when you really start to go on the road and things get heavy. What was your what was your favorite place to play at, like venues or like parties or stuff like or clubs? Well, um, probably my favorite place that we played here. It was just this little dive called Prince's Deli, and it was kind of a bar that they made made food at. But all the bands from around this area had played there for years, and when we finally got to play there a few times, we thought it was really cool. But uh, my my favorites were playing parties, as you said. Um, I remember being in um, at, at this huge chalet that somebody had rented out that knew my drummer, and there were like two or three hundred people in this chalet. It was pretty big, but we were we had the best time there. Uh, there was other times where uh, we knew another band who um, his uh, the, the the singer's uncle had owned this sheet metal factory that closed down, and it was all fenced in, and so he would have bands come there. It was a huge place and, and they had a, a stage. And so we would have several hundred people come there and, and hang out while we played. So what kind of useful skills did you learn as a musician? Well, one of the things was just perseverance and um, not letting, because um, I, like I said, I'm not a people person, but when you're a singer, you know, you have to kind of get over that and just do it. And so that helped me to get over some of my, anxiety and also when i started to record music myself uh, we had went in the studio and recorded several demos but when i went in or when i began to record music on my own that really helped me to understand that there's so many different ways of doing many things because it's that way with with music recording and editing so that's one of the great things i learned so did you learn any like uh music history while you were in the band for that 10 years Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18-plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Black Friday deal. Black Friday deal. The gifts are unreal. 
shop JCPenney for thousands of deals so low, no coupons needed. This weekend, save up to 50% on kitchen electrics from brands like Keurig and Cuisinart. Say yes, please, to diamonds and gemstones, now $19.99 each. And bundle up the fam in coats, starting at $14.99. We got your holiday. Black Friday deals. Shop, shop. JCPenney. Offers valid on select items 1118 through 1120. Excluded from coupons. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details. I, I didn't. I played by ear. Uh, that's, you know, I never learned any how, how to read music or anything like that. You know, I read a lot of musicians that I liked, kind of tried to get their perspective. Uh, one of the greatest things I think I ever learned was um, this. Uh, I think he is uh, dead now, but he was the guitar player for Def Leppard. And I didn't even like the band, but for some reason, I read an article by him and he's he was talking about his favorite guitar player. And he said, if you want to play like a certain guy don't just emulate them find out who their heroes were learn how they played and then you will start to sound more like him so that that was a big life lesson there if you could tag with any musician for one month on tour who would it be and why uh i would probably probably um Megadeth, Dave Mustaine, that's one of my favorite thrash bands. And he's such an interesting guy. Uh, just uh, the conversations that I think that we would have would be fantastic. And just watching him play and watching the band play, um, I think would just be wonderful. So how do you think social media has changed the music industry or this music in general? Well, you know... Like I said uh, earlier, the double-edged sword analogy, I think it's helped people. It's really helped bands, especially bands without any money, uh, you know, kind of advertise for themselves and get the word out and, and put their music and even links for their merchandise up. But at the same time, you know, it's it allowed a lot of music to be online free and a lot, and you know, that hurt the musicians really badly. And uh, I think that things have kind of been downhill for musicians ever since Napster, <laughs> you know, as, as, and you know, unfortunately, the record company was taking a huge uh, part of the money anyway. And so when that happened, uh, like I, like I remember we had recorded a demo and the fellow, the engineer who recorded us, uh, he was, he was kind of a talent scout. And he told us at the time, and this is going back probably 2001, 2002, that an average band at the time you could get a CD for like 15 to 17 bucks. He said the average band only gets like a buck and a quarter out of that 15 to $17. So you can imagine how much it takes to, to become a, a Metallica or somebody like that. So what's the best way to them to make money is merchandise? Yes. And, you know, used to the way it worked is you would uh you would record an album and basically you go in debt for the money it takes to record that album and out of the sales you will repay the record company and for the studio and the engineer and all that but you made your money through merchandising the record company had nothing to do with that well since the days of napster and the money loss now when you get signed you sign over merch rights to the record company as well so they get a big cut of that so unfortunately if you've got a record deal they're getting a big cut of that so if you could change anything about the music industry what would it what would it be and why i would if it were possible 
I would get people who work for these record companies, I would make sure that they were fans of music and musicians, not just looking at these guys like seeing dollar signs and looking at them like just some employee slash slave, you know, um, because I feel like it's such a, you know, anything with art, I think you need other artists and people who, at least people who understand the art or appreciate the art to help those artists to sell and, and to, uh, to work their business. So I would make sure for one, that that was the case. And two, I think that, uh, I would try to come up with ways of getting to know the artists, uh, more on a more personal note and kind of, uh, pitch that to, uh, the fans and, um, you know, try to bring back as silly as it sounds, I would try to bring back, you know, instruments and more raw sounding music, because I feel like when humans are playing these instruments and you don't have a lot of electronic stuff going on, it really reaches the soul more because it's more, orga more organic. So I went through your uh, different episodes of your show, and I wanted to ask you different questions about what you've covered so far. So my first question is, what is the Fabian Society? Well, the Fabian Society is a socialist society. They were created in 18, I believe, eight or no, excuse me, uh, 1884 was the year that they were founded. And actually, there is pretty good information to suggest that George Orwell wrote 1984 because he had spent time as a Fabian and he liked what they had to say at first. And then he realized that they were going too far and he wrote 1984 to kind of show what a world would end up like if it was in a Fabian society. But it was basically a, uh, it kind of started out as a book club and a, a speech club. And right away they started printing pamphlets and uh, they didn't believe in property rights. They were huge uh, Karl Marx fans, but um, also they, they had other ideas too. They didn't like, they didn't like the burn it down kind of idea they wanted to gradually uh, work their way into the public and private sector. It's called Fabian permeation. So they said they didn't even want everyone to call themselves a Fabian or join the uh, group officially. They wanted people to go out and insert themselves in the, the, the you know, the Tories, the, the labor, they started the labor party actually in London. Um, they started the London School of Economics and Political Science. Uh, these guys really have had a huge influence, but still they have managed to keep it under radar. So speaking of uh, the book 1984, do you think we're headed into that Fabian society of what, uh, what the author, I forgot the author's name right now. Do you think we're heading towards that path? What's, I what, do. Uh, yeah, I, I do. I see a lot of parallels there with, um, you know, especially with the censorship and the remaking of words and language, uh, I think it's um, you know kind of a cross between Brave New World and uh, 1984. So, speaking of censorship, censorship, what are your thoughts on that? Well, you know, it's funny today. Uh, you know, when you're on Facebook, and I know many people don't go on there anymore. I don't blame them, but uh, I know a lot of people, you know, personally, so I still go on there sometimes. And I got a reminder from six years ago where I had posted, it said, um, get ready to see censorship like you've never seen it before. And, you know, it wasn't because I, I'm necessarily smart or anything like that. I just kind of seen where things were going. 
and now and now there's thousands of uh, YouTube channels gone, and since you know people who've lost their profiles on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook and you name it. So uh, I think it's going to get worse and worse. Um, I actually saw um, Naftali. I forget his last name, but I think he was the PM of Israel. Um, he was giving a speech talking about how they, they had developed technology to go in and uh, sense certain words, certain things, and they were going to report those. They're going to have a system of reporting that. And he was talking about the U.S. He was talking about different states in there. And, of course, that's just one source. I know that other people, you know, other organizations are doing that as well. So I think we're going to see a lot more. Well, that's not with words. I've also heard that Disney can like go into their like their old movies and like cut portions out that they find like racist or like against the like agenda they're pushing forward to these kids and all that stuff. Yeah, I mean, you know, it, the power is in their hands. So, you know, I, I think they can do pretty much anything they want. And, you know, you have a fairly incredulous public unfortunately. So I think that, uh, you know, they, they have the power to do what they want to do. You know, I've been researching Francis Bacon and Shakespeare a little bit because a lot of people I'd mentioned say that uh, Francis Bacon was Shakespeare. And there's a lot of information, the more I look into it to, to say that. But he did talk openly about the power of theater even back then. And he, he said it could be used for good or bad, but he was really uh, playing up the fact that it could be used to to uh, educate people and to control their minds, basically. That's not exactly how he worded it. So, you know, we're kind of at the mercy of Hollywood and these people who are making movies and, and TV shows and, and different things like that. So what is the NGO and what have you learned about them? What kind of like uh, eye-opening thing did you like encounter while you were researching about them? Yeah, so NGO stands for Non-Governmental Organization. And some people refer to them as tax-exempt foundations. A lot of them are supposedly charities or uh, philanthropic organizations. And if you go back to the 50s, I think it was called the uh, Reese Committee, if I remember correctly. And so this uh, people from our government had figured out that these groups like the Ford Foundation and Carnegie Endowment and these different ones were connected to communism, communism and different things like that. And so I think it, it, they suppose like the, the, the investigation got shut down. So this is what I've learned. You've got the council on foreign relations and Chatham house and trilateral commission, uh, council for national policy. You know, you could go on and on and on with all these, the Atlantic council is NATO's think tank. And they try to say, Oh, we're just a, we're just a policy Institute. You know, we're a think tank, but, if you look at it, especially with it, like the Council on Foreign Relations, every presidential administration has their members. The last I counted, the last time I, I stopped counting with uh, the current administration, Biden, he had 23 Council on Foreign Relations members, two or three Atlantic Council members, over a half a dozen Aspen Institute members. So Dennis L. Cuddy, one of the authors I mentioned earlier, he says he calls it people is or people are policy. And he says, look, you've got this presidential administration. Every one of them has a ton of these NGO members. And so there's no real need to have a this really super secret 
secret society type conspiracy because all these people were educated in similar places. They belong to similar fraternities and they have similar ideologies. And so they just naturally act the same way. And so I think these NGOs have insinuated themselves into political uh, parties and in uh, especially presidential administrations for so long that they control the policies in there. So speaking of secret societies, what have you found information on them that you want to share with my listeners about what kind of eye-opening things you do like notice that was like, Oh my God, what the hell are they planning on doing or what, or what they will be doing later on? Well, one thing that I've, I've seen several running themes that seem to be almost unanimous in the different ones that I've studied so far. And that is man is his own God that reality doesn't exist. Uh, they're, they're big into dualism You know, everything just evens each other out. Um, they're big into, um, Oh gosh, I'm, I'm blanking on what they call it. Uh, when you come back to life as something else, uh, reincarnation, reincarnation. Uh, you know, so I, I see those things, they have those things in common. Uh, but the main thing that I think is so concerning is they want almost all of them want to build some kind of world brotherhood. And they seem to, a lot of them talk about these secret rulers or these hidden masters, you know, and they never quite reveal who they are. And, uh, I think that that is troublesome as well, because, you know, I, I just don't think there's any way that we could be ruled by this Supreme Council. Uh, and it's it's kind of like the idea of uh, the League of Nations or world government. Uh, you know, who's going to hold those guys accountable? So I'll go ahead. So I, I just feel like that this world brotherhood that almost all of them are trying to push is is very dangerous. So what are all the different secret societies out there? You know, there's so many, uh, you know, I had mentioned some of the most popular ones, the Rosicrucians, the Freemasons, um, of course, there's different sects of the Freemasons, uh, the Bavarian Illuminati, um, the Order of Skull and Bones, which is a fraternity, but masonry, you know, th th they used to call themselves fraternities. Um, also, um, I looked into the Temple of Set, which was an offshoot of the Church of Satan. I uh, looked a little bit into the Church of Satan, uh, but I feel like they're a little bit more uh, of theatrics and kind of attitude, whereas the Temple of Set and some of these others, there's a lot of um, intelligent, uh, deep thinking that goes behind them, which makes them even more dangerous. So, um, yeah. oh, oh, continue on. No, no, go ahead, please. I was going to say, who are the Pilgrim Society then? Oh, thank you. I knew I was forgetting one. So the Pilgrim Society, they were formed even before the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, they were a group that formed, I think, the year after Cecil Rhodes died. And it was all of his friends. Uh, he had talked about in his last will and testament, and this is official, uh, he had, uh, and it was written by the newspaper icon, William T. Stead, who was supposed to be like the world's first ever uh, kind of um, national Enquirer type of writer but he said in his will that he wanted to create a secret society to take over the world and have england basically run the world but he wanted to base it on the jesuits the kind of the structure and and loosely on the freemasons without all the the garb and the costumes and things like that so uh they formed that the year he died and it was 
uh, I think it was Nathan Rothschild, uh, uh, Carnegie was part of it at first. Of course, William T. Stead, uh, this man named Lord Alfred Milner, who inherited most of Cecil Rhodes' money. He was basically all the, the richest men of the time in England there. And I believe that, uh, the, I'm forgetting his name. Was it John D. Rockefeller was the first one, I believe. So uh, he was a part of it. He was basically, as far as I can tell, they tried to say it was just... Uh, there was one in the in England, and then the next year, the United States. And so they claimed it was just a way to foster relationships between Brits and, and Americans. But it was kind of, to me, I believe, like something like a Bohemian Grove type setting where, or, or, or even a Bilderberg where these guys could come together and talk about important business dealings. And uh, I believe that's what it is at heart. So speaking of the Rockefellers, who who exactly are they? Well, you know, they made their money um, mainly, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, originally on oil. And, you know, they owned Standard Oil, one of the richest families, you know, in America. Definitely one of the most important, too, because they had and have still their hand in everything, especially education and uh, the medical field, medicine and hospitals. And uh, even with this new uh, inclusive capitalism, this idea that uh, they've, they're floating around, it's the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers, you know, you can, and the Catholic Church is in on it and a bunch of other people that are very powerful and, and have a lot of money. So I think that uh, the Rockefellers have been one of the most influential families in all of history. So are the Rockefellers and the Rothschilds the same people or they're different? They're different. So the, the Rothschilds came out of Germany and uh, they're Jewish and the Rockefellers, as far as I know, I think they do have some Jewish heritage, but uh, they, they're, they, Amer they're American and I don't know where they originated, maybe Scotland. I can't remember now, but uh, the two families have worked together over the years, you know, been known as the two of the richest and most influential. And definitely they are because uh, they, their wealth is just spread all around. Now, I don't think the Rockefellers are quite as influential as they once were, but Rothschilds, you see their name on all kinds of stuff all across the world. So speaking of England, what do you think, since the Queen has passed away, what do you think is going to go on with their, like, their economy and stuff? And like, you know, I've learned that the Queen was like very, like she ruled over England. So what do you think is going to happen in the future with that country? You know, I really don't know. I think that she may have been the glue kind of holding that whole thing together. You know, she has a good reputation as far as that goes. So she either was a good person or she hid anything that she did bad uh, pretty darn well. But, uh, you know, I think that her family are probably some pretty bad people, at least, uh, uh, you know, her uh, her son, her her husband, who's dead now, Prince Philip. Uh, some of these guys. So it's going to be interesting to see what, how they can hold this whole thing together in, in 2022, having this, you know, this popular um, family of Royals that are like in the spotlight all the time. You see Harry, you know, he, the whole thing with him moving here, it's just really strange. So I really don't know what's going to happen, but I can't see them really holding this thing together. It seems like a charade to me. So do you think like it'll be like a one world government in the UK without the royals leading the way? Well, you know, my fear is something major is going to happen, like another 
you know, disease or something like that. And they're going to push for this, you know, world governing body because, you know, they've written about it for decades and decades. They tried to do it with the League of Nations. I think the World Economic Forum, it seems to be the way they're going with it. I think they're going to, they want to turn the, the whole world, I believe, into a public-private partnership you know, where it's partially government, but it's partially the, the largest monopoly corporations. And, uh, you know, I think that they're actually doing that. And, you know, when, when these large corporations step in and help under a quote-unquote emergency, then they form this partnership. I think that's the way they're going. So speaking of Agenda 2030, do you think they're actually going to fulfill that? They're actually going to let what their plans are like fully happen? Or do you think it's like some point they're going to realize people are not falling for their shit anymore and like to stop? I think they will push for it as long and as hard as they can until the, the pushback is so much that they would have to kill a large amount of people. And I don't think they want to do that, uh, at least not outright. If they could form some way of doing it in, you know, under a quote unquote natural disaster or plague, I think they, that might happen. I hope to God it won't, but uh, I really feel like they're going to push it as, as far as they can, because so many things have happened, you know, with agenda 21, you know, being last year, they, they accomplished quite a few things there. So I think it's, <laughs> they're going for it, man. So speaking of capitalist and the other financial thing, what is capitalist? I never understood that term really well. I know you might know more. So if you can share your thoughts on that, go ahead. Yeah, well, you know, everybody has their own ideas. And I, my ideas have fluctuated over time. I still say that I'm a capitalist in that if we're talking about capitalism, as in, say, I have a product and I want to sell it to you and you want the product. And I, I say, OK, it's this much. You say, OK, that's worth it to me. And you give it to me and we exchange those two things. That to me is capitalism. But a lot of people say, no, capitalism is what I call cronyism or protectionism, where you have, like I said, the, you know, the earlier, the, the monopolies and the biggest companies, corporations working with the governments and they, you know, they're able to destroy all smaller competition because they, they band together and even the big companies will, they'll, they'll even go and, and support certain regulations because they know it would be too expensive for smaller companies to compete so to me, that's capitalism is just a free exchange of goods and services for money or trade. So what is the origins of education? So it's been a while since I've done that one, but it's really interesting once you start looking into that. The, in fact, actually, uh, more recently, I did the shows on the Bavarian Illuminati, and that all started around education, and they, they, they made their the plan's very clear that they wanted to infiltrate education. That would be one of their best ways because you get people when you're they're young and pliable. But the same thing with the Fabians, that was one of their biggest things. And then you look at the origins of the U.S. education system. You have people like John Dewey, who was, um, you know, a humanist. Um, he uh, was very open about, he had something called the new individualism, I believe is what he called it. And it wasn't like individualism as in you and I, we we're, we want to do what we want to do and, and, and rule our own lives. It was more like he was trying to rewrite what individualism needs to be. It was like a little individualism, but you got to go along with the big picture. But you had people like Horace Mann, who was a Freemason. 
the Rockefellers were, um, I think his name was Frederick T. Gates, uh, worked for Rockefeller. I forget his official title, but these guys were behind the education system big time. Also, the, uh, the Skull and Bone Society, uh, they were behind education. And I believe his name was Daniel Coit Gilman. He actually started, uh, he was the first president of Johns Hopkins, I believe, and the first president of the Carnegie Endowment. So, and if you look into the skull and bones, so many of those guys have went on to be deans or college professors or work at Yale in some high you know, position of power. So I think that the world order, these more globalist minded people took over education early on. What's your opinion on the education system now? Does it, do you think it needs to be destroyed and re, re, uh, re, uh, redone? Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's certainly out of date, but I think that it started with kind of a, you know, they, they say it started on the Prussian system, which they basically wanted to create good little worker bees to work in factories and be soldiers. And, you know, everything's changed a lot since then. And I think that uh, there needs to be some way that they can focus more on fostering the individualism of each child because every one of us are so special and unique. And you cannot, you know, I, I took my son out of public education this uh, past, well, actually last year. Uh, unfortunately, my daughters did go to public education, but uh, it was just too much. Uh, the The schools are going you know, the, the things that people see online, I saw some of that stuff too. And the teachers, I've noticed this, I have a big difference in age. I said earlier with, between my kids, the teachers nowadays think of themselves as big kids and they try to dress like kids and they try to be the kids' best friends. And I've noticed a huge change in that. Uh, you know, there, there were teachers who would say weird things to, and my kids, he, he was 11 at the time. Uh, there was one teacher who would talk about her personal life all the time and how she took uh, these uh, psych meds and she was depressed all the time. You know, they, they say things to these kids that they should never talk about to their students. So I think that it just seems to me like it needs to be wiped out and restarted all over. Yeah, I agree. I am not married or anything, but when I used to go to college or middle school or elementary school, I didn't, we didn't do, we didn't have like, Teachers doing all that inappropriate things that they do now. Yeah, I could, I never saw anything like that, you know. And, and and you know, you hear every now and then you'll hear a story. Well, somebody will say that they knew something strange was going on, but I personally never knew anything like that. And you know, you might have one or two teachers who kind of tried to be more friendly with the kids, but even at the end of the day, they were still a teacher and someone you had to respect. And uh, I think that that's been lost for the most part. So going back to secret societies, who were the Jesuits then? So the Jesuits were uh, created by the Catholic Church. They were a specific smaller sect of uh, some people say they started out as an armed kind of like a, a militia. And I'm still I've just done one episode on that. I'm going to do a part two where I get more into the conspiratorial view. But if you read their mainstream kind of uh, description, they were basically just like a, kind of like a sect almost of monks. And uh, there's many, many Jesuit colleges and high schools. And a, supposedly to actually be a full-fledged Jesuit minister, uh, 
I guess you would call it a, a father, you uh, you have to go 17 years to their education system. But if you start to look at all the, you know, the history there, they've been kicked out of numerous countries. They've been connected to, um, you know, liberation theology. They've been connected to, uh, you know, overthrow of governments. They've been connected to the Nazis in World War II, uh, just all kinds of different things. So as I uh, look into that more, I want to get more uh, facts and, and compare what they say as opposed to what uh, the conspiratorial people say and kind of see what I can come up with. So speaking of the Nazis, who, who exactly were those people? Well, you know, that's one of those that the more I study it, the more I think that there's more to that whole story. I mean, there's no question um, because I find out that, you know, of course, uh, World War One, you know, they I, I feel like if I had to say and this is not an educated guess, I mean, I have read a lot about it, but uh, I believe that Britain wanted to destroy Germany because Germany was doing so well. And uh, with their technology, and uh, I think that uh, the Britain had ruled the world for so many years, I think they felt like they have to destroy Germany. So World War One came, and they they said that you know that uh, Germany had to make reparations, and there was no way they they set the reparations so high, and that allowed them to create eventually create the uh, Bank of International Settlements that was supposed to oversee that kind of thing. So I believe that uh, for the most part, I believe they, the globalists and in, in especially the English wanted to take out Germany because they were their biggest uh, competitor. And then I think that uh, Germany was in, in ruins and Hitler and, you know, the Nazis unfortunately came in and they were able to, uh, you know, get rid of debt and, and make it a, a place where it, it was thriving again. So do you think, wait, go ahead. No, 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 go ahead. I was going to say, uh, do you think Hitler was um, t told what to do, like when it came to like the Holocaust and stuff, like he was pressured to like kill all those Jewish people and all that stuff? Or do you think that he didn't really want to do it? Like, that's what I mean, meant. You know, I, I really don't know. I, I'll go back and forth on that. I personally, just me, I believe that he got away and lived in Argentina uh, or someplace like that because he was so, you know, you can say a lot of things about Hitler, but stupid is not one of them. You know, you can say the Nazis were extremely intelligent, and that's why we brought many of their scientists and physicians over here under Operation Paperclip. But beyond that, we allowed many of the Nazis to go to Germany or to, uh, you know, to different parts of the world in uh, South America, Central America. So they were able to escape, and that was known. They had the, the Nazi rat lines. But not only that, uh, you know, I've, I found out recently uh, through Richard Grove's book about the Rothschilds that there was a deal made between the top Zionists and um, uh, not David Rockefeller, his brother. I'm blanking on his name. He'd ran for president at the time. I think he was a, a senator. But uh, there was a deal made that he would help to push for the Jewish state. But the deal was they had to let a bunch of the Nazis get away and they wouldn't be tried in the Nuremberg trials. So I think that that's something that needs to be looked into more. I think there was a lot of collaboration there. And, uh, you know, we'll probably never know to what extent. 
So questions to finish the episode. What is giving you hope right now? Well, I am hopeful when I, I, I do see people online, you know, probably people in our circles who are very intelligent and they're doing deep research and they're trying to really figure out things for themselves and they're sharing that information. And so that gives me hope. And also, you know, you see that a lot of times people are getting just over this authoritarian kind of behavior by these governments and you see it in other countries even more so than here so that gives me hope that uh, you know because things ebb and flow and everything has a certain amount of time so it'll be interesting to see if these governments can keep this up without the mass amount of people waking up and realizing it's a you know it's it's a scam uh, what are three podcasts you recommend to my listeners and why oh that's a good question well, I recommend uh, to call the Boiler Room, and that is on Alternate Current Radio. And I'm actually on that sometimes. It's on right now, actually. But uh, alternatecurrentradio.com. Also, uh, Conspiracy or Just a Coincidence, my friend Jack, he does great work. I think you know him as well. Uh, gosh, I don't want to leave anybody out. Um, can, I, can I say two or three more? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, the Occult Rejects are great. John Brisson from We've Read the Documents. It's not a podcast, but he does do other podcasts. Um, there's so many good ones. Uh, come on, there's got to be one more. Uh, I don't know. Those, those are the ones I'm thinking about off the top of my head. Uh, do you have anything to say to my listeners before we finish? Yeah, I mean, keep hope. Never lose all hope. And don't let anyone bully you. I think we're, we're about to be bullied into being quiet and not saying things about this group or that group. And it's purposeful. And as, there's never anything racist or bigoted, excuse me, bigoted about following the money trail. That's the best thing you can do is follow the money trail for the corruption. And you will find nine out of 10 times you will find who the bad guys are. And lastly, where can people find you online? So you can find me at Instagram or Twitter at underscore the odd man out. And I have in my bio there, it, in either one, you've got the link tree and it'll take you to all my other stuff. Or you can go to the odd man com, and that's my podcast. And you guys could find me on Twitter and Instagram at hawk underscore it underscore podcast. You can find my podcast at all podcasting platforms. Thank you so much, Odd Man, for coming on the show today. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You, too, could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Shop JCPenney for thousands of deals so low, no coupons needed. This weekend, save up to 50% on kitchen electrics from brands like Keurig and Cuisinart. Say yes, please, to diamonds and gemstones, now $19.99 each. And bundle up the fam in coats, starting at $14.99. We got your holiday. Offers valid on select items 1118 through 1120. Excluded from coupons. Exclusions apply. See store or jcp.com for details.